the National Archives podcast series, Fictional Obscenities, Lesbianism and Censorship in the Early 20th Century, presented by Dr. Louise Chambers. Please note, this podcast features mature themes and some explicit references. This afternoon, so I want to talk for about, oh, what's it going to be, about 50 minutes, on the subject of obscenity and censorship. Um, and think about those issues in relation mainly to lesbian identity, but as well, sort of more generally, in terms of homosexuality. I need to do a little bit of background first about the way in which I do history, because I don't do history in quite the same way I think that history is done traditionally, and some of the terminology I use will be... The words will sound familiar, but the way in which I use them is slightly different to, let's say, to the norm. So bit of background then before we look at the literature. A particular hero of mine, I don't have many male heroes, but one of them is a chap called Michel Foucault. He was a philosopher and a historian. He lived from, well, he was born in 1926 and died, unfortunately, in 1984. And Foucault was a Nietzschean student and very keen on the way in which Frederick Nietzsche rethought the way that history could be written. And Foucault developed a methodology for doing history, which was use the kind of language, as I said earlier, that you'll be familiar with, archaeology, genealogy, power, knowledge, and the archive. But the way in which Foucault defined these terms was very different to the traditional way in which people thought about history. And he also, he was very concerned with the Victorian era, era in particular, and the way in which crime... Um, the kind of medical establishment and psychiatry operated during that era. Now, most people, when they think about Victorian times, they think about repression, and they think about pianos with socks on the legs and women in not allowed to show a glimpse of ankle and all this kind of stuff. And the Victorians were oppressive and repressive when it came to sex, sexuality, um, and, in fact, anything to do with that kind of filthy stuff that was over there somewhere. Now, Foucault did quite a lot of reading around the 17th and 18th century and the kind of texts about sexuality and sexual orientation that were being produced at the time. And what really interested him was not the repression of all of this stuff, but there, was so, there seemed to be so much of it. And there's a very, very, very famous quote from a book called History of Sexuality, where Foucault says, around and apropos of sex, one sees a veritable discursive explosion. And I try to illustrate that with some of these pictures. So you might be familiar with the chap top right, Dr. Sigmund Freud, for those of you who are not familiar. Psychopathia sexualis was a, a kind of the last word in sexual perversion. It was a tome that was written by a psychiatrist called Kraft Ebbing, and it featured every imaginative variation on sexual behaviour and a whole load of things that I've never even thought of. I mean, you have to read the book. <laughs> there are, and I mean this in a very literal way, hundreds of different ways of getting off, of having an orgasm. And these are described in minute detail in this book. And you can buy a copy. Um, it's still available. It was published originally uh, in the 1860s in, um, in Vienna. It was translated in 1886 into English, and you can still get copies of it, obviously up-to-date copies. I think the last kind of edition was the 1960s, but I'm sure if you go online you can get a copy. There's also a DVD, would you believe? Uh, <laughs> and if I'd, if I'd have had time, I'd have brought it with me, but uh, sadly, no time for that. But the, the DVD kind of reenacts some of the more interesting, shall we say, um, sexual proclivities in this book and uh, available from all good um, record and DVD shops. I've also included Havelock Ellis. Um, Havelock Ellis was one of the more famous um, researchers, sort of late um, 19th, early 20th century researchers, who was particularly interested in sexual inversion, and I'll talk about that in a bit more detail in a minute. So what Foucault is arguing is, is that there's this huge outpouring of information about sex and about sexuality and about perversion 
and deviation and so on and so forth. And he's very curious about how come there's this apparent paradox between this explosion of, of texts and literature around sex and this kind of belief that the Victorians hated talking about it. Let me just explain some of this terminology. Foucault is a, a kind of, he comes from a discipline that believes that language doesn't reflect the world, but it creates the world. So when you use a term like homosexual, you're not reflecting, or lesbian, you're not reflecting an already pre-existing person who, I don't know, in the case of a homosexual, has a limp wrist, and in the case of a lesbian, wears combat trousers, yeah? You're, you're, the, these ideas about homosexuals and lesbians are produced along with the way that we describe them and the language that we use to produce them. The second point is his way of talking about archaeology. So you're probably familiar with that term in terms of people with little spades digging up things from the ground. He's talking about a textual archive, uh, which is, I guess, what this place is. This place is, is a perfect space for a, a textual archaeologist because it's all about folders, papers, case studies, letters, memoranda, court cases, parliamentary debates, all the paraphernalia of, of, of a bureaucracy and of a bureaucratic state, all in one gorgeous place where we can come and gorge ourselves, as it were, to our heart's content, delving into these papers like sort of paper archaeologists, if you like, to try and dig down into this paperwork and try and make some sense about the past. Genealogy, again, we're familiar, I'm sure, with family trees. I'm sure there are hundreds of people out there doing their genealogies, even as I speak. For Foucault, he used Nietzsche's idea of the genealogy. And Nietzsche was very opposed to causality in history. In other words, he wasn't interested in why things happened or what caused things to happen. What he was interested in was how things came to be. And Foucault uses this term, conditions of possibility. And what he's arguing is that when you're interested in investigating a particular issue, such as censorship, what you need to concern yourself with is not just these kind of ideas about censorship is just about oppression. And again, remember the repressive hypothesis. What he's saying is, think about what was happening at the time within which this censorship emerged. So I've jotted down a few conditions around the time that I'm interested in. So during the sort of middle of the 19th century and into the early 20th, we had a number of things going on. We had the idea of the new woman. And the new woman was a career-minded, career-oriented woman who wasn't interested particularly in marriage and babies or men, and I say that deliberately because this will become an issue later on. What she was interested in was a life by herself, she wanted the vote, and she wanted a career. And many of these new women wanted equality. And she was a problem. And Freud even said, what do we do about the problem of women? So not only did you have this new woman, she was a problem. You had all of these sexual deviants, homosexuals, um, well, I need to use my language very carefully. People who we now refer to as homosexuals, people whom we now refer to as lesbians, they might have been called sodomites in those days, they might have been called buggers. If they were women, they may, be, may have been called Tommies or Tribades. There are various different nomenclature for describing these people, but they were a problem as well. Public hygiene was a problem, not just physical, but mental hygiene and moral hygiene. Evolutionary theory had been established as a way of uh, making sense of humanity and how humans had evolved. And evolutionary theory produced a proper object of desire. And the proper object of desire was the opposite sex, because evolution is about reproduction. And the other problem were the working classes, women, as I've already said, and children. And the working classes and women and children need to be protected. And they need to, to be protected by government and by the institutions of government, which 
needed to look after these poor people because if they weren't protected, they could very quickly go off the rails. And they could very quickly begin to suffer from mental health issues, turn to crime, get involved in all kinds of sexual peccadilloes, which they really shouldn't do. So there are whole loads of problems into which this information about censorship is trying to make sense of itself. The final thing I want to talk about is power and knowledge. And Foucault argued that power and knowledge were actually in a symbiotic relationship with each other. You couldn't have the one without the other. So there's a, this old aphorism, was it knowledge is power, they say. Well, Foucault's argument is knowledge and power are actually so closely entwined they can't be separated out. And in order to establish a theory or a practice, it needs particular kind of power behind it. And in order to be powerful, you needed a particular kind of knowledge to support it. So the great power knowledge um, set up in the 19th century was science. We'd been through the Enlightenment, and scientific power knowledge had taken over from, um, from religion and from superstition and from women's knowledge about healing and women's knowledge about um, herbology and witchcraft, all of that had been swept aside by the mighty phallic science. And science was the power towards the end of the 19th and into the 20th century. Right. I refer to censorship as an art or as an artifice, and by that I mean a way of constructing and a way of doing things. So Foucault says this, more important was the multiplication of discourses concerning sex in the field of the exercise of power itself, an institutional incitement to speak about it and to do so more and more, a determination on the part of the agencies of power to hear it spoken about and to cause it to speak through explicit articulation and endlessly accumulated detail. And when he talks about agencies of power, he's not just talking about government. He's talking about the law and the legal system. He's talking about the prison system, the medical establishment, the psychiatrists and the psychologists, the educationalists, the pedagogians, and the academics. So there's this whole kind of institutional um, systems of power which are encouraging people and Foucault uses the word confess. He argues that the psychiatrist studio became a confessional where a person who was suffering maybe they thought they were suffering from um, same-sex desire would go along to a psychiatrist and confess to being a pervert and then ask for some kind of treatment in order to, to, to quote unquote cure them. Some people say that's still going on today, only in relation to religion rather than psychiatry, but that's another story. So my, with all that in mind, my hypothesis about censorship is censorship isn't about repression. What I'm arguing is that censorship is a mechanism that, in tandem with other forms of artifice, and I'm thinking of the law, I'm thinking of uh, medical knowledge, I'm thinking of psychiatry in particular, is involved in the production, the regulation, and the management of specific sexual subjectivities. And by subjectivities, I mean ways of being sexual. What we now call lesbian, gay, bisexual. These are sexual subjectivities. And these systems of censorship designate who can speak and who can write about sex. The subjects on which they're allowed to speak and write and where they can speak and write, where they are allowed to publish and to talk about these um, disgusting, filthy things. And in order to try and support this hypothesis, I've got a few case studies from the archives. A couple more things. What's in a name? A lesbian by any other name is a sapphist, a homosexual, a sapphic, Lebanese, I've seen that referred to a couple of times. I think it's a euphemism for lesbian. Um, Tribades, Tommy or Tommies, invert and gynandrist. Now, some of these terms are medical terms. So these terms, homosexual, invert, gynandrist, these are specific medical terms that were coined at a particular moment 
during the 19th century. Some of the other terms, such as Safist, Lebanese, and lesbian are much more likely to be self-identified terms. And they began to circulate through women and women's communities talking about themselves and using this kind of terminology. So there's a kind of split, if you like, or a tension between self-identity, the way that women involved in same-sex relations and same-sex communities are defining themselves and the way they are being defined by this apparatus of these different institutions. And to explain the idea of the invert, um, you need to understand that around about the middle of the 19th century, there were no gays, no lesbians, no bisexual people, no transgender people, no transvestites. There were just inverts. And we were all inverts. Anybody who identifies as LGBT, IT, um, V, intersex, and so on and so forth, um, we were all inverts. And it was a very simple model. You didn't have to be a genius to figure this out, and it was just as well because this was being operated by psychiatrists. Basically, if your patient demonstrated that their mind and their body were inversed, inverted, in other words, the mind was male, the body was female, or the body was female and the mind was male, and if they could demonstrate that, or if you could diagnose that that was the case, there was this inversion of their mind, then they were an invert, and they were mentally ill. Now later on, they began to use other terms, and they produced this kind of continuum of inversion. And at the one end, you had earnings, Uranians, and at the other, hand, the other end, you had a gynandrist. Now, a, a, a earning or a uranium was generally a guy, I need to qualify that, a person with male genitalia who turned up in the psychiatrist studio in a dress or a skirt or vic female Victorian attire anyway, usually makeup. And when you look at the case studies, they seem to like knitting and sewing circles. They're very stereotypical female behaviours. And the gynandrist well, it's really Stephen, those of you read The Well of Loneliness, the gynandrist is a character like Stephen, um, dressed in male attire, so again, um, genitalia female, but dressed in male attire, maybe breasts, but usually quite small, and covered up or bound down so they couldn't be seen. Um, short hair, loved things like hunting, fishing, hanging out with the boys. Except when they're having sex and they like hanging out with the girls. Um, very, very stereotypical ways these days of thinking about what we would probably call transsexuals or transgender people or transvestites. But in those days, those terms didn't exist. So this is what we're dealing with. This quite painful, kind of semi-Greek mythological terminology um, and kind of pseudo-medical. We've, we've got the word gyne in there, so it's kind of pseudo-medical. Um, Okay, everybody is an invert. Incidentally, heterosexuality, mental illness. It was a mental illness in the 19th century. How many, hands up, how many people knew that? One, two, three, four, five, okay. Out of about 20 people. Heterosexuality was what we these days would call bisexuality. It was a desire, manifest desire to have sex with anyone, really, I don't mind. Um, if they're willing, I'm up for it. Um, <laughs> hetero, many, right? Multiple, many. That's, that's where that word comes from. Later on, it became normalised and it became the established way of talking about so-called straight people, normal people, not mad people. Um, but at the time, it was a mental illness, and so was um, homosexuality. And so were all those other terms, gynandry, uranium, and all the rest of them. They were all pathologies. Right, the first case study then, Well of Loneliness. How many of you have read it? Hands up. How many of you found it really hard work? <laughs> Still a few hands. So, okay, so four or five of you have read it. Right, um, I'm not going to give you a synopsis because it is that big. It's 500 pages. Um, anybody who's read it all probably found it really hard work at times. It can be a bit, it gets a bit turgid and a bit heavy going. Um, and she is a bit depressing, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a potboiler. 
Um, so I'm going to be really, really lazy and just give you the last sentence in the book. But before I do that, a <laughs> bit of background. Um, in August 1928, those lovely people at HM Customs seized a whole bunch of books which had arrived from Paris. Um, and they were seized under the Customs Consolidation Act. And the Customs Consolidation Act was partly concerned with the movement of obscene and indecent literature through, um, throughout Europe and throughout the rest of the world. So they were seized in order to check these books and make sure they were all clean um, and okay for uh, consumption by normal, decent, healthy individuals. However, and I'd love to meet the customs officer who read it, because somebody read the whole of the Well of Loneliness and decided it was indecent. And so they wrote to the Home Office, and on the 21st of August, this was the Home Office response. The book is a plea, not only for toleration, but for the recognition of sexual perversion among women. Now, bear in mind, because of evolutionary theory, the, same, the discussion or the writing of same-sex desire, that desire is considered to be a perversion. And it's not a perversion in the sense we think about perverts now, you know, paedophiles and all that, the sun, sun head, headlines. It's a perversion in that it perverts evolution. Does that make sense? So it's a perversion in a much more kind of an intellectual academic sense. Um, and incidentally, I love this, it would appear to be clear that, that the authoress herself is what I believe is known as a homosexualist. <laughs> or as she prefers to describe it, an invert. Now, um, Radcliffe Hall was very clever because she referred to Stephen as an invert. And she did that very deliberately because she wants this book to be taken seriously. So she uses medical terminology. And it's really important to state that because it's one of the reasons why there was such a big debate about this book. Now, this may be the guy who read the book, but there was a very, I think, enlightened chap in customs who offered this, um, this letter. He wrote to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. His name was F.L.C. Flood. And he wrote to the Chancellor on the 9th of October 1928. He said, our examination of the book leaves us in considerable doubt whether the book can properly be regarded as indecent or obscene. The subject is treated seriously and sincerely, with restraint in expression and with great literary skill and delicacy. In effect, is an appeal for compassion and understanding, and the pitiful tragedy of the story does not seem calculated to arouse sexual emotion or to corrupt morals by encouraging the practice of sexual inversion. The book is not one that should be stopped on the ground of indecency or obscenity. Now, I thought, what a decent man to have said that. Um, there is not one sexual act in this entire book. There's not one reference to a sexual act in this entire book. It is not obscene in the sort of schoolboy thumb through and try and find something dirty sense of obscene. Um, and this is really what this chap is saying. It's, it's a perfectly decent and reasonable demand almost for, um, for tolerance for people who have this affliction. Now, what do we mean by obscene? Well, we've got a bit of a problem here because in the 1920s we haven't got a lot to go by. So this is the legal advice from the Home Office. I cannot find any statutory definition of indecency or obscenity. Generally, the word indecent is applied in law to acts, so acts and behaviours, while the word obscene is used in reference to words oral or written. So it, if it's either indecency or obscenity and we're, we've got a book, then we're concerned with obscenity. However, there was some common law that they could rely on. But they had to go back to 1868 to find it. So Coburn CJ in The Queen versus Hickling, this is in 1868, said this. I think the test of obscenity is this, whether the tendency of the matter charged as obscenity is to deprave and corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences and into whose hands a publication of this sort may fall. And I've gone on to say such publications might be available to medical practitioners and their students. They should not be available to the general public because it would necessarily tend to the corruption of morals. Now, remember I said earlier, um, this censorship is about where you can say things and who can say it. So if you're a doctor or a medic or a psychiatrist or a judge, you can talk about sex 
provided you do it in a courtroom, in a medical establishment, in a university, or somewhere which is institutionalized and recognized as an institution. What you can't do is put it in here and sell it on the high street. That's the difficulty that um, Radcliffe Hall's publishers had, or at least one of the difficulties. Now, on the files, there are loads and loads of letters from some wonderful, wonderful people, Virginia Woolf, Julian Huxley, Ian Forster, and Rivera Britton, to name but a few. And they sent loads of letters to the Times, bless them. Um, and they were arguing that the book is, is a great literary work, and it should not be declared as obscene, because there's nothing in there which could, is arguably is, is kind of you know, descriptions of sexual behaviour, and the book itself is a work of literature. And why should the government be banning works of art? That was their argument. Now, remember I talked about power knowledge. This argument, because it's based on an idea of art and literature, no power whatsoever. They weren't the slightest bit interested in its literary merit. Because what they're concerned with is where sex is being talked about and by whom. Does that make sense? It could be the greatest work of literary genius, it isn't, but it could be the greatest work of literary that was ever written. It doesn't matter because it's not about literature, it's about sex. And I don't mean the act of sex, I mean talking about putting sex into discourse, to use Foucault's term. Does that make some kind of sense? Okay, so sorry Vera, but you failed on that one. So what I've said is please from people like Vera Britton et al. fail because this is not about literary merit. merit. And remember those conditions I talked about earlier. It's about mental health and hygiene. It's about protecting the weaker members of the populace. Remember women, weaker sex, can't cope with these kind of ideas. Our little heads explode at the very thought of people involved in same-sex relationships. We can't deal. We're always fainting, aren't we? Yeah? All through the... That's why I had to sit on a chair today. It's about the regulation of inverts. And, it's a, and what the book does, shock horror, is it questions what was then believed to be natural and normal. And it didn't stand on earthly. Really, it didn't. So, 16th of November, 1928, and it's wonderful because the archive has got the whole adjudication on file so you can read the whole horrible thing for yourselves. So this is an extract. There is a plea for existence at the end. That, of course, at the end of the book. That, of course, means a plea for existence in which the invert is to be recognised and tolerated and not treated with condemnation by all decent people. Notice that word, decent people. This being the tenor of this book, I have no hesitation, whatever, in saying it is an obscene libel, that it would tend to corrupt those into whose hands it should fall, and that the publication of this book is an offence against public decency. Now, I'm going to read you the last sentence from the book, as promised. Actually, sorry, it's the last paragraph. So this is Stephen talking. God, she gasped, we believe. So she's talking to God, she's praying to God. We have told you we believe. We have not denied you. Then rise up and defend us. Acknowledge us, O God, before the whole world. Give us also the right to our existence. Now, all she's doing is saying, I want the right to exist and to be treated as a person and not as a pervert. And she's praying to God. And she's being condemned for doing that. It's almost, almost made me think about witches and heresy. It's almost like she's being condemned as a heretic for asking God to acknowledge her existence as a human being. So she, the appeal also failed, surprise, surprise. So um, again, the adjudication is on file. The chair of the uh, appeal hearing was Sir Robert Wallace, and he pretty much reiterated what was said by Sir Charles Byron. He says, it is a book which condones unnatural practices, notice that word, unnatural, and suggests those guilty of them, guilty, so this is about judging people's um, sexual behaviour. Those guilty of them should not receive the consequences they deserve to suffer. This, notice the religiosity of this language. It's really quite Victorian, isn't it? 
The view of this court is that this is a disgusting book, and that was it. The book was banned, and it wasn't actually published in this country until 1949, so it took another 20 years um, for that ban to be lifted. Now, something which really, really interests me about these archives is most of the, um, the challenges about the books and about the, the letters and about the, the texts that are being written don't come from customs, they don't come from judges, they don't come from magistrates, they come from people like you and me. Ordinary people, ordinary, sorry, shouldn't call you ordinary, um, everyday people, let's use that word, everyday people who decide that a book that they've seen or read about or heard about is disgusting. And, you know, angry of Tunbridge Wells. Anybody from Tunbridge Wells? I shouldn't pick on... <laughs> <laughs> I just knew there had to be. Um, most of these come from order, and they come in some of the most wonderful ways. So this is one example. There's a telegraph on file. Um, and the telegraph says, uh, this is the address of the Home Secretary, letters and certain articles in the Spectator for the 14th, 21st and 28th September call for strong action by your department. Um, and he's very brave, this, this, this chap Thompson, because he even gives his home address. He's, I suppose he's not there anymore because I can't go around and sort him out. But, um. <laughs> okay, so he's complaining. And what he's complaining about are a series of um, articles and letters in the Spectator magazine published um, in the 1930s. And these letters are about sex and about young, particularly about young people and fornication, and about same-sex relationships. And this chap's decided, again, think about where things are allowed to be spoken about and by whom. He's decided that ordinary people, the readers of The Spectator, are not allowed to talk about sex in a, a magazine like The Spectator. It's not a proper place to do these things. Um, and so you get these series of, um, of events that I've described as the case for suppression. This comes from The Spectator. Um, Owing to The Spectator persistently inserting articles and book reviews of a nature unfit for general family reading, articles which are likely to cost you thousands notice this language of decent-minded contributors. And then he goes on to say, strange though it may seem to you, there's a vast majority of men who want good, clean, honest-to-goodness women to be the mothers of their children, and a vast majority of women who want good, clean, honest-to-goodness men to be the fathers of their children. And notice this language again, this language of hygiene. Good, clean, and this language of, um, of, of the courts. Good, clean, honest-to-goodness. Good, God-fearing religious people should not be talking about sex in The Spectator. That's really what he's saying. Um, and what I love about the Home Office is occasionally they do something right. Um, so this is their response. Um, the Home Office says there are, there are the usual two views revealed in the correspondence, one emphasising the danger to be apprehended from the statement of opinions which differ from the accepted code, and the other stressing the advantages to be expected from plain speaking. And the note concludes, and I do love this, we do not need to reply to him. <laughs> A victory for a little bit of bureaucratic common sense. Hoorah. So it's not all terrible, terrible, horrible censorship. Sometimes people decide enough is enough. 1935, um, a doctor who I think was herself a single woman, and I have to be very careful about naming people, so because I don't suppose she's still alive, but she might have um, descendants who are alive. So I've, I've just called her Dr. M. Kidd. Um, she complained to um, the DPP, the, the Director of Prosec Public Prosecutions, about this book. I managed to get a copy of it. The wonders of the internet. I do love the internet. Um, this book is called The Single Woman and Her Emotional Problems. You remember earlier I talked about single women as a problem. And the, the, the fear among the medics was that single women weren't getting it. They weren't having babies, and Freud insisted in his work that if women didn't have babies, they would suffer from hysteria and his hysterical symptoms. Think about the word hysteria, hyster, yeah? Um, hysteria was, was known parochially as a wandering womb. And the idea was if you didn't have a baby, the womb would detach itself. The uterus would detach itself from where it was and wander all around the body. Destroy, seriously, 
that's what they believe, destroying the liver and the kidneys and eventually killing the poor, unfortunate woman. Um, so they were very worried about the woman's physical health, but also her mental health. If she wasn't having regular sex and the, you know, the joy of a normal, natural, uh, you know, um, evolutionary relationship with a man, um, she would go mad. And what this book really does is to give advice to single women about how to look after themselves and how to avoid emotional problems. And obviously, um, the author deals with sex. So this is the advice that came from the DPP to the Home Office. Um, as I explained to you, the book raises a singularly difficult problem on the question of whether or not some proceedings should be taken against the author and publishers. Because it's clear the book is written with a serious purpose, so you notice again this, this language, is this the right place to talk about sex? And it appears to deal more or less from a scientific point of view, so they're doing science, so maybe it's okay, with somewhat peculiar psychological questions relating to women. So you, you can almost hear them prevaricating. The, the author's a doctor, she's talking about sex, but she's doing it from a scientific perspective and she's using psychology. And when you read the book, you find there's a whole passage about um, psychology and normality. So she clearly knows her stuff, this woman. Ah, but on the other hand, the marked pages on pages 68 and 69 and other marked pages, um, 102 to 104, indicate that the writer, while not openly advocating the practices mentioned on those pages, is certainly adopting a very charitable attitude, a bit like that naughty Radcliffe Hall. Um, towards matters which might ordinarily call for condemnation. Now, the reason I had to, had to buy this is because I wanted to see what were on pages <laughs> 68 69 and 102 to 104. And to my joy, um, pages 68 69 are all about masturbation. Um, and I don't know if you know, but there were quite a few different kinds of vibrators available by the 1930s. And so... Um, the doctor's giving advice to the women on, on um, how to use these things. A perfectly sensible thing to do, in my view. Um, so 68 and 69 are about masturbation and how to satisfy yourself with these mechanical devices and also various other means. Um, but the other, the other part is about sexual inversion. And this uh, is talking about women being able to kind of relieve their sexual frustrations in relations with other women. And I've just a very short passage from there, just to give you an idea of what, uh, what she was writing. So this is uh, one of these pages. It starts on page 106. Both the tendency on the one hand by the so-called normal to speculate and sneer and condemn, and on the other by the sexually inverted to make exaggerated claims for consideration and sympathy. So she's clearly got Radcliffe Hall in mind need to be controlled and moderated by contemplation of recent biological and psychological hypotheses. And she goes on, no profound investigation of the origins, physical or psychological, of sexual inversion can be attempted or is required in such a book as this, but it may be useful just to survey the field. And what she then goes on to do is she talks about the medical evidence in support of this theory of inversion. So there's no talk about sexual acts. It's simply a me what you would now, I guess, call a medical book, which is explaining why some women are, end up being diagnosed as inverts. So again, not too much for the schoolboy to get much fun out of. So this is the response from, um, from the DPP's office. And again, the, the whole response is, is in the archives. The substance of the book amounts to this. There are now a large number of women who cannot expect to marry because of the surplus of women over men. They are deprived of the normal emotional and physical experiences of married women. Bear in mind another condition. This is between the wars. So a lot of these women are not single because of choice. They're single because tens of thousands of, men, of possible um, husbands were slaughtered uh, in the trenches between 1914 and 1918. They are deprived of the normal emotional and physical experience of married women. For some women, satisfaction may be obtained by either masturbation or by lesbianism. So you note that word lesbianism is now being used by, by the establishment. So it must, be, it must be an acceptable word because the bureaucrats are using it. Um, the physical effects of either practice not being harmful and harm resulting only if the women practicing one or other of these methods 
these methods, regards them as wrong. In other words, what he's saying is if the women involved in these relations are consenting and they don't see any problem with it, then why are we condemning a book that simply sets out what these practices happen to be? The book is temperately written. The author is alive to the fact her views may be called, and I couldn't read that word, so I'm not sure what that was, by older women who wish to get hold of a younger woman or girl. Incidentally, another joy of the archives is so much of these papers are handwritten, and it's great fun trying to, to, to distinguish, particularly doctors writing. <laughs> <coughs> Two questions arise. Is this book indecent? And if so, is it expedient to prosecute? I suggest the answer to B is no. So he's not too sure about A, but he decides not to prosecute. And the Director of Public Prosecutions put a note on the file as well. Uh, he said, it's an important opinion because it comes very near to saying, if it does not act actually say so, that a serious book, notice that word serious, a serious book on sexual questions is not suitably to be dealt with under law about indecent prosecution. So in other words, this again is about who's talking, where they're talking, and how they're talking. If it's a doctor writing in a medical text about the serious subject of inversion and masturbation, it cannot be treated as libel. Does that make sense? But this book, The Well of Loneliness, where they're talking about a very similar number of things because it's uh, written by a novelist in a fictional book and available in the high street, uh-uh, you can't do it. So he says, it is not the subject of the book, but the method of treatment, which is the important thing. And joyfully, for me, that really supports my hypothesis. Isn't that a coincidence? <laughs> However, just when you thought maybe things were easing off a little bit as we go through the 1930s, we get another complaint, and this time from a bunch of people I'd never heard of, the Public Morality Council. The only equivalent I can think of is, do you remember Mary Whitehouse and the, the National Viewers and Listeners Association in the 1970s? I think they were some, something similar. Um, Public Morality Council, formed in 1899 to combat vice and indecency in London. Members included representatives of the Church of England, Roman Catholic and nonconformist churches and of the Jewish faith, leaders in education, medicine and charitable association and others supporting reform. It continued until 1969. It was then replaced by another morality council, so it didn't end there. But um, on the files, you can see a short history of this council and some of the letters, fascinating letters they sent. Uh, you can imagine the DPP's office, can't you? Um, you know, they come in in the morning, so we had any letters today from the PMC? Yeah, just a pile, you know, they'll be sitting there. Okay, so, um, in 5th of June 1934, they demand the prosecution of two books. One's called The Loveliest of Friends, it's by G. Sheila Donisthorpe, and the other is called Do They Remember, it's by D.L. Lodden. And that is, uh, that is um, the cover of the book as it was published in 1955, so this is not what it would have looked like in 1935, but the cover gives you a reasonably good idea about what's going on. They're not sisters. And... I've got a copy, <laughs> and I've read it, and there's no sex. <laughs> I'm a bit of a prude, actually. I, I love lesbian books, but I get really bored when they start getting into the really heavy sex stuff. I'm going to skip a few pages. So this is really cool, because there's no sex in here. Um, and it's a bit depressing, because um, the ending is... I, I don't know if you know very much about... Um, about censorship at the time, but if you wanted to write about homosexuality or, or lesbian relationships, one of three things had to happen. The protagonists either had to die, they had to go mad, or they had to be arrested and put in prison. And if it didn't end like that, it would be banned, it would be censored. Um, and the same applied, interestingly, to plays and to film, under what was called the Hayes Code which was introduced in 1934 in Hollywood and applied across the world. Because let's face it, if you couldn't show a film in America, you might as well not bother. I know the French might disagree with me, but anyway. Um, movies, exactly the same. If you look at any film made before 1934, or made around 1934, between about 34 and 1969, the protagonists 
uh, either gay or lesbian protagonists, they either went mad, died, or finished up in prison. You were not allowed to have a happy ending. And the thing about this book is it leaves the ending hanging. Um, and quite a few lesbian writers at the time did that. They just left it hanging. So you'd, you'd have, the, the couple would have parted company and one of them would have gone back to their husband and the other one would get on a train. Or one of them would be thinking about going back to her husband and the other one would get on a bus or a car and leave the town. And so, you know, that was it. You didn't know what happened. That was the only way you had even a hope of getting it published without having this tragic ending. And even then, most of the books, unless you had the tragic ending, would not be published. And that's what happened to these two books. They were both banned because the ending was not really an ending, and it wasn't a tragic ending. So something else that's happening in relation to censorship and the regulation of relationships is that people have to believe, even lesbians and gay men in these relationships, they have to come to believe that they're not going to be happy if they're in these relationships. There is going to be no pleasure to be had from these relationships. They're going to be miserable, they're going to need therapy, they're mentally ill anyway, this is what the psychiatrists tell us. They're wearing the wrong clothes, they're doing the wrong things, they're not proper women, they're not having babies, um, and they're desperately unhappy. And one of the sad kind of legacies of this kind of thinking is that these days there are huge numbers of lesbian and gay people in therapy because they've lived through this, but also because there is still this belief hanging around that you're not allowed to be happy if you're in these relationships because they're not normal. And uh, uh, um, Foucault talks about writing what he calls a history of the present. And what he means by that is that the past is still with us. It's implicated in what we do, not just in um, our, our buses and our transport system and our institutions, but how we behave and how we think and how we dress and how we act is a legacy of the past. And so a lot of lesbian and gay people think that being lesbian or, and, and or gay is abnormal and that you're always going to be unhappy. And that's partly because of this legacy and this censorship of happy people. And I've done a lot of reading around lesbian communities. I've recently read a book about uh, the communities in Paris. And they were bloody deliriously happy. There's a great, great book called Girls, and it's about lesbians in Hollywood in the 30s. And they had a whale of a time. They really did have a whale of a time. But these books have only now been published. And these diaries that you can read, there was... Um, Fictionalization, wasn't there, of, um, I've forgotten her name, Anne Lister, thank you. Um, now, those diaries have only very recently come to light, and there's lots of different reasons why. But Anne was in a very, very happy relationship, and this is back in the, in the, the late 17th, early 18th century, a very happy relationship. Had a few unhappy ones, but by all accounts of this diary, she had a really good time trying to find the woman that she eventually um, came to live with for the rest of her life. So when, now, when you look back, there's lots and lots and lots of evidence of, of happy, happy homosexuals and, and happy lesbians. But in the 30s and before that, all you had was misery. And this is, for me, this is one of the reasons why this censorship occurs. It's not about suppressing. It's about allowing people to read stuff that tells you you're going to be bloody miserable and you're mad. And those are the dominant ways in which these... Um, these ways of being sexual are being regulated. Does that make sense? So we'll let them read it, provided it tells them they're going to spend the rest of their lives being miserable and mad. Otherwise, we're not going to let them read it. Okay, quick postscript. Fast forward a few years, 15 years, to 1951, and this is a letter from the Lord Chamberlain to the Lord Chancellor, 6th of February. I'm under heavy pressure from some shades of public opinion to lift the ban on plays in which references to homosexuality occur. There's a certain urgency as a play about lesbianism. Notice the capital N. Isn't that interesting? 
capital L lesbianism is under immediate decision. And the following day, Lord Chancellor responds that he would rather not see these plays. He actually refers to himself as an old Victorian. But he says, I'm fairly confident that young people of today know about these things and do not shrink from hearing them discussed. Now, another element of censorship is that people were terrified that if they told women about lesbianism, that women would all go out and become lesbians. As if women didn't know. Do you know what I mean? As if women didn't know about masturbation and clitoral orgasms. As if we needed a man to tell us about all this stuff. So people know about these things and we don't have to worry about them knowing because they're already discussing it. So this play wasn't banned. And by the mid-1950s, there was a, a, a whole explosion of what was called lesbian pulp fiction. Wonder if you can get hold of some of this, a lot of them have just been republished. Um, if you, so go out and get some of them, read them. They're fabulous. Um, and there was this sudden explosion. And the sort of next part of my research is to really try and figure out why. What was it about the mid-50s that suddenly resulted in the lifting of the censoring of these novels, and suddenly they were out there. Um, film took a long time. It wasn't until the 70s that lesbian film really began to kick in. Um, and we were still, uh, anyone seen The Children's Hour? Anyone? God, it's a depressing, yeah, one person's seen it. God, it's such a depressing film. I think it was made in 69, and it's about two lesbians who are school teachers. Um, I won't give the ending away, but it's, it, it's tragic, it's really tragic. So even in the late 60s in the cinema, we were getting these awful tragedies, but some of these books are wonderful. They, are, they, they just really emphasize the pleasure of being a lesbian, and they're amazing. And I'm just really curious about how, what, what was it about the mid-50s that resulted in, in these books suddenly being allowed to be published. So, quick conclusion. So my view is censorship is an art form, it's an artifice, it's a construct that can be used not to suppress but to create a system for regulating and managing sexualities and particularly apparent or unacceptable sexualities. A discourse or practice of sex is authorised, and by that I mean allowed into the public domain provided the author, the subject matter and the medium satisfy certain criteria. And as the DPP remarks in 36, a serious book on sexual questions is not suitably to be dealt with under the law about indecent prosecutions. So if you can establish your credence, notice at the beginning, Dr. Chambers, and I got, to, I, I, <laughs> I got you, didn't I, to repeat about 15 times, just so you know I'm a proper doctor. <laughs> Until the early 1950s, most attempts at challenging this orthodoxy, particularly through fictional accounts, were simply not available to the good, clean, honest, and to goodness men and women of the UK. And we can only be grateful that things are a bit different now. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 23rd of September 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>